All right, Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Paul continues to write, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Okay. So last time, of course, we looked at verses 10 through 12. And it's one of those, I, I always have a hard time sometimes. There are always some passages that you're not quite sure how to break down, how to separate. So like verse 10, um, in most Bibles, if you have headings, might be included with verses 6 through 9. Uh, I saw it as more, you know, belonging to verses 11 through 24. Uh, but as you look at verses 10 through 12, like we looked at last time, this sets the stage for Paul's defense of his ministry. So Paul comes out, and he is, uh, he is writing to these churches... <laughs> It's a group of churches, not one single church. He's writing to these churches in this region of Galatia, which is central Turkey, southern part of it. He's, he's writing to a group of churches that he started on his first missionary journey, which you can read about in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And he's writing to them because they are quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. So they are, they are turning away from the gospel. And he hears about this. Paul most likely is probably in Antioch, which is in northern Syria, which is sort of like his home base, if you will. It's sort of like the, the epicenter from which the missionary journeys had gone out and gone forth. Whenever he leaves, he goes out from Antioch, and then he usually returns to Antioch. Um, so he hears about this, and he writes to them. And he writes, this is probably his earliest letter. And it's one of the earliest letters in the New Testament. And he writes to them. And so he's very forceful when he writes to them. He's very forceful because they are abandoning the gospel. Now, it's not so much that they are abandoning the gospel like they're turning away from it. But what they're doing is they're adding to it, which is, in effect, turning away from it. So they're adding to the gospel. They're distorting it. They are listening to people who trouble them and distort the gospel of Christ. Now, part of that is based on the fact that these troublers that came in were sort of uh, picking apart Paul's gospel. They were picking apart Paul's ministry. So you pick up these clues as you read through the letter um, that talk about, you see how Paul is sort of trying to defend his gospel, trying to defend his ministry. 
So he is trying to defend his gospel to the people to whom he preached. And he, you see that now in verses 10 through 24. And really this, this defense goes on through chapter 2. You could probably stop it at around four, verse 14. Um, some go to the end of chapter 2. Uh, but that, that section there, 14 through 21 of chapter 2, is sort of like a pivot point as he starts to now go into what is the gospel. But he's defending his gospel ministry. And he's going to talk about his own conversion. He's going to talk about a trip that he made to Jerusalem. He's going to talk about another trip he made to Jerusalem. And he's going to talk about a time in which he had to confront Peter face to face because Peter himself was sort of lulled away by these people who had come from Jerusalem and were troubling them in Antioch. So, you know, all of this is all part of how Paul defends his ministry of the gospel and defends his, uh, the message of his gospel as well. So like I said, verses 10 through 12 sort of set the stage. As he says, he, he, his gospel is not a man-pleasing gospel. It is not a gospel that was uh, originated with man, but it is a gospel that was received through revelation. Paul's gospel and the gospel of Jesus Christ is a revelation. It is not something that we made up. It is not something that uh, starts with man. It is not something that is for man in the sense of pleasing our ears and trying to make us feel good about ourselves. The gospel is all about the person and work of Jesus Christ coming into the world to save sinners of whom we are all members And then in verses 13 through 24, now he starts to talk about his life. He's like, look, my ministry, first of all, my gospel is not originated from man, nor is my ministry. I wasn't called by people to do this thing. He's going to talk about how he was called by Jesus Christ himself, how he was set apart and called into this ministry. So we'll look at that as we go through these verses. And, uh, you know, if I had to come up with a sentence that sort of ties this together, um, it would be this, that the revelation of Jesus Christ here turned a once zealous Pharisee into the apostle of the Gentiles. That's how, I mean, that's how dramatic the gospel is. That's how powerful the gospel is. Because it took someone who was very zealous, a very zealous Pharisee, and turned him into the greatest preacher of the gospel ever seen. Outside of Jesus Christ, of course. Uh, Let's begin then. So set apart for the gospel. We're going to look at this in three parts. Uh, Paul talks about his former life in Judaism in verses 13 through 14. Then he talks about how he was called by grace in verses 15 through 17. And then in verses 18 through 24, he talks about his first visit to Jerusalem. Again, this is kind of autobiographical. Paul is talking about his, his calling, his ministry, his life. And we're going to look at several other passages in the book of Acts primarily, uh, in some of the epistles, that, where Paul talks about his life. Paul has done this more than once, right? And the book of Acts does this more than once. It, it recounts the actual story of his conversion, and then it recounts two times that Paul talks about his conversion when he is before, um, when he is before the, the, the Roman officials in the latter part of the chapters of uh, the book of Acts. So... Uh, Paul's life is pretty well known to us, at least from the pages of Scripture. So first, in 13, verses 13 and 14, Paul talks about his 
former life in Judaism. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So here Paul says, not only is Paul's gospel not of human origin or design, but it's a revelation of Jesus Christ, so too his ministry is of divine origin as he talks about his former life and talks about his conversion in a moment. But just, you know, again for a refresher, look at verse 1 of chapter 1, how Paul here uh, describes himself as he uh, introduces himself in the letter. Paul, an apostle... Not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, we've mentioned this before. Paul often talks about how he is an apostle from Jesus Christ or called by Jesus Christ. But in some letters, he goes that little bit of extra mile to to show that his ministry is not something that he came up with on his own. If you flip over to Ephesians chapter 1. You get a little taste of this too. All of these are the first verses of the letter. So Ephesians 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Or you could flip over to Colossians chapter 1. Same thing. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. And then one more, 1 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 1, 1 Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God and our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. So in all those passages, as he addresses himself, now to Timothy, Timothy knew this, but Paul is just emphasizing this to Timothy, but same thing to the Colossians, same thing to the Ephesians, same thing to the Galatians. I am an apostle, not because it was something I decided to do one day, I'm an apostle because Christ Jesus called me. I'm an apostle because God willed it. I'm an apostle because God commanded it. I mean, if you were to look at, and we're going to look at it, if you were to look at Paul's early life, you, could all, you can almost certainly say there's, there's nothing in his early life that would ever indicate that he would become an apostle of Christ Jesus. If anything, as he says here, I try to destroy the church of God violently destroyed. I mean, I wanted to see it lying in smoking ruins. That was my former way of life. So much did I hate the church. Why? Because it went against the traditions of the fathers, which I learned. The traditions of the rabbis. Now we know of Paul that unlike the rest of the twelve, Paul was not a disciple, right? We'll see that in a moment. He was not a follower of Jesus Christ when Christ was alive. And he reminds now his readers of who he was previously. My old life, my old thing. You know, if you, you know, we have our calendar, of course, is uh, separated between before Christ, right? And then uh, Anno Domini. I used to, someone used to tell me it's like 80 used to mean after death, but in the year of the Lord is Anno Domini. And before Christ, you know, BC before Christ. Well, everybody, including Paul himself, can mark a, a point in the calendar that, say, that would say before Christ, and then from that point on in the year of our Lord. Everyone's life is like that. 
And Paul is going to talk about his B.C. days, his life before Christ. Now, this is where we're going to start looking at other passages. So, uh, keep your, if you've got a ribbon, keep it in Galatians. And uh, turn with me, please, to Acts. We're going to look at several passages in Acts. The first one is in Acts chapter 7. And I believe we may have referenced this last week. But this is the first time you see Saul or Paul, and he's a young man. He's referred to here as a young man. And, of course, chapter 7 of Acts is Stephen's great speech. And it's a long speech where Stephen is called before the crowd um, because in chapter 6, you see he's working miracles and, and he's refuting people who come and challenge him. So they, they, they try to they trump up some charges. They bring him before the crowd and he gives this great speech in which he goes through the history of the Jewish people and then talks about how they are stiff-necked, how they are always resisting the will of God, which triggers them, right? <laughs> you know, that, that, kind of, that kind of triggers them. So they begin to stone him. Uh, so verse 54, now when they had heard these things, they were enraged. Well, what things? Well, you stiff-necked people, verse 51. Uncircumcised in heart. Oh, wow. See, you don't say that to a Jew. <laughs> Uncircumcised in heart and ears. In other words, your, your heart and your ears are dull. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That's a pretty stinging rebuke of the Jewish people, right? It's like you are God's chosen and you have been resisting God all this time. He sends you prophets, you kill the prophets. And you have uncircumcised hearts and ears. And you murdered the righteous one. I mean, he's not, he's not pulling punches, okay? He is not pulling punches at all. He just lays it out. So in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth, they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing. That's, that's amazing because we always hear about Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father. His work is done. I am seated in the position of authority and honor. Here Jesus is standing. It's like he's giving a standing ovation to the faith of Stephen as he uh, witnesses and, uh, to, the, to the wondrous uh, work of Christ. And he says, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. So they didn't want to hear that. <laughs> then verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul was there. Saul more than likely may have been a representative of the Sanhedrin overseeing this. And here he is when they get ready to stone Stephen. He's like, here, let me take your coats. That way you can really get a good wind-up when you throw that stone down at him and you're not hindered by those cloaks. Just leave them here at my feet and go at it. So here is Saul. Saul approving of the stoning of Stephen. Then in verse, or chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, 
And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So this triggered Paul. Paul's like, okay, Stephen's dead. Now let's get the rest of the church. Let's, let's snuff them out. So he ravages them. He scatters them. He goes house to house. I mean, this is almost like, you know, like Gestapo, right? You know, like the secret police going from house to house. Are you harboring any Christians? Are you yourself a Christian? Are you a follower of the way? And dragging them out so that he can arrest, you know, arrest them and probably end up killing them. Chapter 9, verses 1. We're going to come back to chapter 9 over and over again, but just the first two verses of chapter 9. Because the rest of chapter 8 talks about Philip and uh, Simon and uh, anyway. But at the chapter 9, we come back to Saul. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So now he's like, all right, I've, done, I've ravaged the area of Jerusalem. He goes to the high priest and says, send me now to Damascus so I can do more. I, I want to do more. I am zealous for this. I am zealous for this. Now turn all the way to the end of Acts chapter 22. This is Paul speaking now to the people. He is in Jerusalem. And he has come back from his third missionary journey. So this is Paul now as a Christian. And uh, he comes back after his third missionary journey. He goes to Jerusalem. Uh, he meets up with the apostles. And uh, there's like an agreement made that Paul would go into the temple and, and uh, pay for the, the, the vows of some people and so they can complete their vows. And then um, the crowd who now knows who Paul is and that they see him as a traitor... They, they make an accusation that, they, that he had brought Timothy, a Gentile, into the temple and had defiled the temple. He hadn't done that, but that's what they were saying. So now Paul here is speaking to the people. And he's, uh, at the end of chapter 21, you see that he's speaking in the Hebrew language. So that, that kind of perks up their ears. In chapter 22, look, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them bound in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So here he's just, he's just saying what, he, what we saw earlier. This is Paul now recounting. He's like, look, this is who I was. I am a Jew. He doesn't say I was a Jew. I am a Jew. I was born in Tarsus and Cilicia. I was educated by one of the greatest rabbis in our tradition, Gamaliel. I learned at his feet. 
I was brought up in a strict manner according to our fathers, and I was zealous. How zealous was I? Well, I was so zealous, I went out and I persecuted the church. A couple more passages, please. Bear with me. Philippians chapter 3. I've looked at this one multiple times as well. This is Paul now writing to the Philippians about his former way of life. And he is writing to them against a group, probably the Judaizers, who were seeking to have them uh, be circumcised. And he warns them in chapter 3. He's like, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evildoers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Those are all insults for, for a Judaizer, right? You don't call someone a dog in the Middle East. That's an insult because dog, you know, the, a Jew, uh, they, they had a strict dietary code. If you know anything about dogs, what do they eat? Pretty much anything you put in front of them. Even things that you don't put in front of them. Things they dig out of the trash. Things they dig up on the ground. So a dog was unclean. He calls them evildoers. That's an insult to a Jewish person because they thought of themselves as righteous. And he calls, those, he calls them those who mutilate the flesh, which is also an insult because they took such great pride in their circumcision. So here Paul now gives a little bit of his resume, a little bit of his pedigree and his performance in verses 4 through 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So in other words, he's like, okay, these people have confidence in the flesh. I'll tell you, it's like, look, if there's anybody who has confidence in the flesh... No one has more confidence in the flesh than I do. That's what he's saying. Look, I have, I have all the marks here. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Look at my pedigree. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's a sign of devoutness for a Jewish family. I was of the people of Israel. I'm not, a, I'm not a somebody who came in. I'm not a, a proselyte. I'm not a Gentile convert. I am a true Jew. But more than that, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm not just any old Jew. I am from Benjamin's tribe. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I am the, the most Hebrew, Hebrew person to ever Hebrew. <laughs> I'm the Hebrewiest of them all. Okay, if that makes sense. Um, as to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I was a, of the strictest sect of our people. As to zeal, you want to measure my zeal? I persecuted the church. You want to talk about my righteousness under the law? I was blameless. I did everything the law required me to do. I performed every sacrifice. I did every tithe. I observed every Sabbath. I did everything the law wanted me to do. So this is Paul's life. Got one more quick passage in 1 Timothy. Chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. We'll be referencing this a couple times too. So here Paul talking to Timothy, this is obviously much later in life, I thank him who has given me strength. So he's thanking God, uh, Christ Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So again, here, Paul, later in life, talks about his life. I was a persecutor. I was, I was a blasphemer. 
Think about that. You know, think about how, how proud he was of his Jewish heritage, only to come to realize, I was blaspheming. I was cursing the, the, the name of God because of my actions. And all the time I'm thinking I'm doing the right thing. So that's Paul's former life. There's no doubt Paul was an enemy of the church. And he goes, you can go back to Galatians. He talks about how he was a rising star in verse 14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. He was at the top of his class. He was the valedictorian. He was you know, on the honor roll. He was number one. I was, I was such, I was so zealous. I, I, I pursued this with everything I had. He was a true believer, notice, in the traditions of my fathers. That's a phrase that typically is speaking about the rabbinic tradition, right? You know, Jesus, of course, he rebukes rabbinic tradition in the Gospels, where he says, you know, your traditions are making a mockery of the commandments of God. We've, looked, we've talked about this, where that they had this little thing about how I didn't need to, I don't need to help my parents Financially, if I have dedicated some of this as a gift to God, I can say, well, I'd love to help you, Mom and Dad, but I, I've dedicated this. This is Corbin. This is a gift to God. I have to, you know, and then Jesus is like, look, you are mocking the commandment to honor your father and mother with your own traditions. So in other words, the Pharisees were mucking up the commandments by adding their own traditions to them. But Paul here is saying, look, I was a true believer in that tradition in the traditions of the fathers. Now, Paul had zeal, right? <laughs> he, was, he was zealous. He was, he, was, he, was on, he was on fire, right? He was filled with fervor. Can't think of other synonyms for that. You know, if you can think of synonyms, throw them out. He was, he was, he was really uh, all in. And zeal can be good. Zeal is like... Zeal can be good. It's one of those things that can be good or it can be bad, right? It's, it's like, it's like a, a, you know, fire. Fire is wonderful to keep you warm, to cook your food. But when your house is on fire, not so good. <laughs> not so good. Well, zeal can be good or it can be bad. It just depends in which direction one is zealous. If you're zealous for these traditions, then that's bad. If you're zealous for the church, for Christ, that's good. Paul talks about the zeal of his brothers, the Jews, in Romans chapter 10. He says he, they have a zeal for God, but the, what's the problem? It's without knowledge. It is without knowledge. They don't know that Christ comes to fulfill the law, so they are zealous for that. So faith and zeal need to be placed in the proper object, and that is, of course, Christ. Now in, verses, in verse 15, Paul pivots. Can you guess which word in verse 15 is my favorite word? But. <laughs> but when. But when. So in verse 15, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles who did not immediately consult with anyone. So Paul, he was once a zealous Pharisee, but... Now, I was once this, but now I've been changed. I've been changed. Why have I been changed? Because I've been called. I've been, I've been set apart. And the cool thing is that everyone here has a but now story. 
right? Now, your but now story may have begun as a child, you know? There might have been, you, you might have the experience that you might not have known a day that you did not love the Lord or know the Lord. And, and maybe that but now moment was sort of subtle as a child, but some of us have very dramatic but now stories where I was going in this direction and then all of a sudden a boulder fell on me and now I'm going in the other direction, right? You have this moment of clarity, this moment where you hit rock bottom or this moment in which something, lights just go on and you have that but now moment. Everyone has a but now story. And, the, and, and we're going to get into this, but the, the, the point is, is not to who has the better but now story, okay? Because I don't think anyone has a better but now story than Paul, okay? Paul probably has the best but now story. I'm on my way to kill Christians, and then the risen Christ appears to me. That's a pretty good but now story. I don't think anyone's going to say, well, you know, I was, you know, you know, knee deep and bottle of booze and then Jesus appeared. You know, it's like, no, no, Paul has a great but now story. But what changed for Paul? You could say it was the conversion, but the conversion really is just the working out of God's decree beforehand. Because what is Paul says, look, but now he acknowledges I had been set apart. So Paul, God didn't just call him when he was on the road to Damascus. God called him before he was born. God set him apart in the womb before he was born. Uh, Romans 1 is good with this. Romans 1 verse 1 is good with this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart. Those same words, called and set apart for the gospel of God. In Acts 9.15 when God is speaking, or Christ is speaking with Ananias, and Ananias says, you want me to go and talk to whom? <laughs> and, and the Lord says to Ananias, go, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He is my chosen instrument. Isaiah 49, verse 1 and 5 talks about how the servant of the Lord was chosen before he was born, so the, you know, the Messiah was, was one who was called and, and, and set apart before uh, he was born. Jeremiah 1 verse 5 talks about how the prophet Jeremiah was called uh, from the womb. Uh, Luke chapter 1, of course, John the Baptist set apart to be the herald of the Lord. All these people called, set apart before we were born. And we know, of course, that Paul was converted on the Damascus Road. But Paul, in a sense, you can say, didn't convert. It wasn't like that was a momentary decision in a point in time. It was, it was something that had, was already kind of by God's providence working its way out to the point where this is the point in time that God decided, now I'm going to activate Paul. In a sense, Paul was like, you could say, like a, you know, if you like spy novels, he was like a sleeper agent. Right, not knowing that at one point in time on the road to Damascus, God was going to call him and says, okay, now you are my chosen instrument. Chosen before he was born, called by God's grace. So Paul's ministry didn't come from man, right? Paul wasn't on the road to Damascus and just all of a sudden, I don't feel like persecuting Christians today. I I think I'll go eat. In fact, I think I'll start preaching the gospel. That's not what Paul... No, 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 no. Paul was called. Paul was chosen. 
And then we see in verse 16 the means that God uses to call him. He was pleased to reveal his son to me. So again, Acts chapter 9, that's, how, that's what we see. In Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 9. So we've looked at the verse, first two verses where Paul is on his way breathing murderous threats against the church. Verse 3 of Acts 9, now as he was on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So that's, that's the actual account of it. Now Paul's own telling of it, again in Philippians 3, in verses 7 and following in Philippians 3. So we had looked at verses 4 through 6 where Paul gives his, his pedigree and his, and his performance. And then verse 7, of course, starts with my favorite word, but, but whatever gain I had. So Paul's talking about how, uh, you know, it's like if anyone has confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then something happened to Paul and then all of a sudden he saw everything that was, he thought was gain becomes loss. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for what? The sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, dung, manure, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ righteousness from God that depends on faith. Christ revealed himself to him. God revealed his son to Paul. And then all of a sudden, Paul, again, those lights turned on, and Paul said, everything I was pursuing, everything I was doing, everything that I thought was so special about me is nothing. It is absolute nothing. Why? Because now I have seen the risen Lord with my eyes. I saw the risen Lord, and I saw that everything I was pursuing was garbage. And now, though, I have the, the, the grace of God who, who gives me his, his righteousness through faith. I don't have to earn it anymore. That word there in verse um, 16 of chapter 1 of Galatians was God was pleased to reveal. That's the word apocalypto, right? You know, apocalypse, revelation. He was made manifest the risen Jesus was literally revealed to Paul. And he's doing all this again to show how his calling, his ministry is not a calling from men. He wasn't commissioned by men to do this. He was commissioned by God himself. And then he goes on in verse 17. When, when this happened to him, when, when, when God revealed his son to him, he didn't immediately go to Jerusalem to confer with those who were apostles before him. Instead, he went away into Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. Now, Arabia, you know, don't think of Saudi Arabia, right? It's an area called the uh, Nabatea. It's, it's kind of in that region by Jordan 
and uh, Syria, and that would be like maybe northwest Saudi Arabia. It's close to where Damascus is. So he goes out into the wilderness for a while and then goes into um, uh, Damascus. And some speculate that the events record that Paul talks about here in verses 16 and 17 are what you see kind of sandwiched in between uh, verses 25 and 26 of Acts chapter 9. So in verse 25 of chapter 9, here it says, But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall. This is Paul, lowering him in a basket. And then verse 26, and when he had come to Jerusalem. So in between there, some speculate that that's what you see here. He went out to Arabia, comes back to Damascus. Now the point of all this, as we said, Paul had a very dramatic conversion. Not everyone has that kind of dramatic conversion story. Uh, So we should not use Paul's life as a rule for our own. We shouldn't say, well, I need to have an experience like Paul. Right? That way, then I'll really, really know that I'm, that I'm called by God. But however, even though we don't all have that same dramatic story, and as I said, I don't think anybody has that dramatic of a story, we are set apart from the womb. We are called by His grace. Whatever it is that you are called to do in this life, you were, know that God had set you apart. He had laid His claim upon you before you were born. And whatever point in your life that this happened, you came to faith in Christ, and he has called you to whatever ministry you are serving in your home, in the community, in the church, whatever it may be. Now finally, and a little more quickly, let's look at the last six verses as Paul now visits Jerusalem. So he continues his little autobiographic account here in verses 18 through 24. Then after three years, three years from his conversion, Uh, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Verse 20, in what I am saying, I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So again, that three years uh, after his conversion. So uh, most uh, commentaries and study Bibles will date Paul's conversion around 33 A.D. or so. So three years later, this would be somewhere around 36 A.D. He goes to Jerusalem. Now again, we can we can see this in the book of Acts, chapter nine, verses 26 to 31. This is Paul's. The visit that he talks about here in these verses in Galatians, you see here in chapter 9, verses 26 through 31. And when he, that is Saul, Paul, came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus, So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and he disputed against the Hellenists, those are Greek-speaking Jews. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. 
So he has this brief visit with the apostles in Jerusalem. He, he visits Peter, Cephas, that's an Aramaic name. And he visits James, the brother of the Lord. And then he's, he's there for a brief period of time, as we saw in Acts, he's preaching. And then he goes. He goes back to uh, north to Syria and Cilicia. Syria, again, is where the church in Antioch is. And Cilicia is uh, where his hometown is, Tarsus. So he goes back up north. And then he makes this interesting comment in verse 20. He says, when I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Again, it's sort of like he's just making an oath. He's like, look, this is the truth. This is what really happened. And he, again, you have to recall, he's talking to people who, who would have, uh, who are already kind of uh, trying to talk Paul down, who are trying to, to dis, you know, give disclaimers about Paul, how they were trying to discount his, his ministry. And then in verses 23 and 24, I, th- I think these are just amazing uh, they, because they bear witness to the fact that Paul's call in ministry was supernatural. Verses 23 and 24. They only were hearing it said, so the, the people around him, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. Again, only the Lord, right? Only the Lord working through the Spirit can turn someone like Saul into someone, as we will later see, named Paul. The persecutor is turned preacher by God's grace alone, and it's all for God's glory. Soli Deo Gloria is a phrase that comes out of the Reformation, those five solas. You've got sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, soli. Uh, solus Christus and soli Deo Gloria, for God's glory alone. And that's the point of all this. God chose Paul in such a dramatic way so that people would see and say, there is this guy who was once breathing murderous threats against the church, who was so zealous to see us destroyed, is now proclaiming the faith he once persecuted. And it just goes to show how we were all at one time enemies with God, Right? We were all at one time enemies with God. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about how Christ appeared, his post-resurrection appearances, how he appeared to Cephas and the Twelve, and then to a bunch of people, and then to James. And in verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And if you remember, when we looked at that, that's Paul talking about how he was you know, he calls himself like a, a miscarriage, right? I was a misfire. I was one that wasn't supposed to be, but I was called by his grace. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Same thing in 1 Timothy, as we saw how Paul talking to Timothy says, hey, I was a persecutor, I was a blasphemer, I was all these evil, rotten things. And then in 1 Timothy, verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 
but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. We were all one-time enemies, and now we are called into Christ, and we become sons and daughters. One more passage, and we'll get ready to close here. Romans 5, great passage. We looked at this a year and a half or so ago. Romans 5, verse 8. Of course, it begins with my favorite word. Actually, my two favorite words. But God, right? (laughs) But God. Because Paul talks about how we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ doesn't wait for us to clean up our act. Right? Christ doesn't say, I will save you if you do A, B, and C, D, and E, and F, and so on and so forth. No, he died for us while we were sinners. He died for us at our lowest point. He died for us while we were the most vile, wretched of sinners. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more now shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God By the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So in other words, look, God did so much for us while we were enemies. He's going to do the not as much hard, the the less harder thing, keeping us saved, right? The greatest thing was him dying for us that we will be saved. And it's like if he's going to do that for us, how much more then will he keep us saved by the grace of God, by the grace of his son? Now, as we close in Galatians here, one thing I want to just note, look again, please, at verses 13 14. I need to really hurry up here. But if you look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1, notice who the subject of these sentences are, right? For you have heard in my former life in Judaism how I persecuted the church, and I was advancing, and I, and I, was, I was extremely zealous. I was doing these things. And then you look at the shift in verses 15, through 17, who's the subject there? God, right? But when he had set me apart, I was born. And he who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me. That's the gospel, right? That's the gospel. Taking us out of our lives, taking us and changing us. It takes us out of darkness, puts us into light. It takes us out of our, out of our self-focus, our self-centered way of living, and puts us into God's story of redemptive history. Paul's conversion is exhibit A, if you will, that the gospel, that his gospel is not man's gospel, and that his ministry is not a man's ministry. And Paul's conversion is proof of two realities. One, the worst sinner, by God's grace, can become the most faithful servant. That's what you see in Paul's life. The worst sinner, right? He says, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the foremost of sinners. The worst sinner can be converted in become the most faithful servant. And two, no one is beyond God's grace to save. Right? There's, there's no sin so vile that you can commit that God's grace cannot cover that sin and save you out of that sin. No one is beyond God's saving grace that is found in the gospel. Well, we'll stop here because I have to. If I don't stop now, we won't start worship on time. You're like, when did we ever start worship on time, Pastor? And it's like, 
next time, which will be in two weeks, because next week is our annual meeting, so we will not have Sunday school at 10, at 9.30, and our worship will be bumped up to 10 o'clock. Uh, but in two weeks, on the 22nd, Lord willing, we'll look at Galatians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 10. And let me close real quick in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a gracious and wonderful, glorious truth that the gospel took someone like Paul and turned him from persecutor into preacher and, and how that is indicative, Lord, of what you've done in our lives, whether at a young age or an older age or on our deathbed. I think, Lord, of the thief on the cross who looked at Jesus and said, just wherever you go, Lord, let me be with you. And we know, Lord, that you, by your grace, saved the worst of sinners and turned them into the most faithful servants. So, Lord, I pray, Lord, that this will encourage us in our walk to know that we are saved by grace, we are kept by grace, and we will be glorified by grace. So, Lord, now prepare our hearts as we get ready to worship you. We ask this all in Jesus' name.